You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. Amen. At this time, children, age four to grade four, you guys can head to the back and meet our Kids Co. volunteers who will be waiting on you there. And parents, don't forget that kids are meeting in Faith Center over the summer, so that's where you can pick them up at the end of the service. And we're going to transition now, like we do every week, into a time of giving and prayer. Giving is an opportunity for us to contribute to the work of gospel ministry, to take the good news of Jesus throughout our own community and throughout the world. There are a couple of different ways you can give at Faith Church. The easiest way to give is on our website, faithrs.org. Just scroll down and you'll see the Give Now button. You can set up one time or recurring gifts there. And if you prefer to give in person, we have donation stations in the back of the room each week. We typically pray for a nation uh, each week in our prayer time, along with praying for many other needs. We focus on one specific nation, and today, with it being Independence Day weekend, we're going to pray for our own country. We're going to pray for the good old U.S. of A. So I want to invite you to pray silently as I voice our prayer aloud. Let's go to the Lord together. Father, you are good. We know that we can come before you this day, bringing all of our needs to you. And you hear them. You are all wise and you are all powerful. So we begin today by praying for our own country. Your word teaches us to pray for those in authority. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. We pray, God, for all of those you have placed in high positions. Your word also teaches us that we are to submit to those who are in authority. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. At times, it seems our government reverses this. They praise those who do evil. And they punish those who do good. But God, let us, your people, not grow weary of doing good. No matter what. It is the gospel and your Holy Spirit that together have the power to transform hearts lives, families, governments, 
civilization. So we pray for the gospel to advance. Jesus, you said to your disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38. We pray, God, for a great advancement of the gospel here in our own country. Here in our own community. Use us in that, God. Use us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can go ahead and grab that and go with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Esther. We're going to look this morning at Esther chapters 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. There are stacks of hardback Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now or on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. And if you don't know your way around the Bible, no worries. The passages that we're going to study together will appear on screen so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words in Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Now in the days of Oshuerus, the Oshuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Oshuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Oshuerus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Today we are beginning a study of the book of Esther. Uh, this is one of the 39 books in the Old Testament. We have several genres in the Old Testament. Some books are poetic, others are prophetic, 
Esther is one of the historical books of the Old Testament. So it tells us a bit of the history of God's ancient people. Now, to understand this story, we need to know a little bit about where it fits on the timeline of God's people, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But I want to tell you at the outset that Esther is unique. And you'll find out more about how exactly it's unique, but this is a very unique book in the Old Testament that I think will speak powerfully to you, whatever might be happening in your life. Now, I'm going to kick off this series today, and then I'm going to hand the ball off to our preaching team, and they're going to carry it the rest of the way downfield over the next four weeks. We'll go about a chapter or two at a time going through this entire story. My task today is to give you the background, the beginning of the story, and what to watch for in the remainder of the story. So let's start with the background. Where are we exactly on the timeline of the Old Testament? Long, long ago, but not in a galaxy far, far away, there was a great nation called Israel. The great king of Israel was David. After David's son, Solomon, after he dies, that great nation of Israel divides. And becomes two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The nation is divided against itself and both parts are vulnerable. God had called, created this people. He had rescued them from slavery. He had given given them this glorious task of reflecting his character and thereby being a blessing to all the nations of the world. But the people rebelled. They became more and more like the pagan nations around them. And so just as at the very beginning of the biblical story, when Adam and Eve rebelled and God banished them from the garden, now at this part of the story, when those two kingdoms rebel against God, God allows foreign nations to invade and to conquer. And so Assyria comes in, conquers the northern kingdom. And Babylon comes in, conquers the southern kingdom. Many of the Jewish people, of God's people, were deported then to foreign nations. Daniel, if you know the Old Testament story of Daniel and his friends, these are some of the best-known examples of people who were deported to the nation of Babylon when the southern kingdom was conquered. The king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, we read about him in Daniel's story. Well, about 50 years or so after that, Another nation comes in and conquers Babylon, and that's the nation of Persia. Persia conquers Babylon, but when Persia does so, the king of Persia at the time, whose name was Cyrus the Great, he gave orders that all of the Jewish people could return to their homeland. For reasons not fully known to us, however, not all of the Jews did. Some of them remained behind. Esther is the story of some of those Jewish people who remained in the pagan nation of Persia. It's the story of what happened to them there and how God provided for them. Now again, fast forward about 50 years from Cyrus the Great that I told you about. A new king now sits on the throne. You've already seen his name. His name was Oshuerus, better known by his Greek name Xerxes I. At the time of the book of Esther, Xerxes is the king... And Persia has become the most powerful political entity in history to date. 
And so in chapter 1, the story begins. And it begins with a banquet, but a banquet without a bride. In the third year of his reign, the king gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So our story begins with Xerxes, Oshuerus. He came to the throne at the age of 32. He's in the third year of his reign here. And in the third year of his reign, Xerxes was preparing to go to war against Greece. Everything that he does here at the beginning of this chapter is an effort to gather support for his war. He shows off. He shows off his wealth and thus his power. He decides to throw a great feast. He gathers all of the noblemen, all of the officials, basically anybody who's anybody is there at this banquet. And for 180 days, six months, they feast, they celebrate, they drink. They sit on golden couches. The golden goblets are passed around. The royal wine flows. And Xerxes says, drink as much as you want. He's trying to show the people how wealthy he is and thus how powerful he is. He wants their support. He wants men who will follow him and who will submit to his every command. Now this 180-day feast banquet is not enough. At the end of that, he decides to have another seven days of feasting. And now he doesn't just invite the noblemen and the officials. He invites everyone in the capital city of Susa. Everyone can come and see how great is the king, Xerxes. So the story begins with this picture of Xerxes. He is a man who will do whatever it takes, who will pay whatever it costs to get what he wants. To get what he wants. One of the most powerful men in the history of the world. Everyone is at his banquet, everyone except his bride. Verse 10, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So get the picture here. Remember, this whole display, this whole banquet, everything, it's all an attempt to show off, to show everyone how powerful he is. And here now, he is shown to be a man who can't control his own wife. He sends for his wife, the queen, Vashti. His plan is to show her off to all of these noblemen. She was a beautiful woman. And so he summons her into his presence so that these lustful noblemen can look at her. Not very noble men at all, really. Much like when we refer to certain establishments today as gentlemen's clubs, you'll find everything there but a gentleman. These are not noblemen, but the king summons his wife so that she will parade her beauty 
a living trophy to his greatness and his power? And Vashti says, no, no. Well, at this, the king is outraged. So he turns to his political advisors to get some good counsel. And they all agree that something must be done. Something drastic must be done. Because not only is this a political embarrassment, the king is not as powerful as he wants us to believe. Not only is it a a political embarrassment, but maybe this might turn into an insurgence. Women throughout the kingdom might begin behaving like Vashti. And before we know it, no man will be able to control his wife. That can't possibly happen. So something drastic must occur. So they decide then and there that Vashti will be stripped of her power. She will be dethroned. They send word to every corner of the kingdom. The Persian Empire used a communication system very similar to the Old West, the Pony Express. So messengers got on horseback and they rode to the far corners of the kingdom. And with incredible swiftness, everyone heard about what had happened to Vashti. If ever there was a doubt... Now everyone knows that Xerxes is a man who will do whatever it takes to get what he wants. Not even his own wife will stand in the way of his ambition. And chapter 1 comes to a close. Chapter 2, enter Esther. After these things, when the anger of the king had abated... He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Now, this little phrase here at the beginning of chapter 2, after these things, is important. Actually, a number of years have passed now, around four years, between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in those intervening years, Xerxes goes to war against Greece, and he's humiliated. It's a humiliating defeat. It drains his treasury. It discredits him among his people. And as Xerxes comes back, now he remembers He no longer has a wife or a queen to console him. So again, he turns to his advisors. He needs some political counsel. And this time, the people come up with an idea. You should have a kingdom-wide beauty contest. Every beautiful single woman should be brought to you one by one until you find the one woman who should become the new queen. Now, make no mistake, this is not some gallant endeavor to find the one woman who can wear the glass slipper. Xerxes is far from Prince Charming. In essence, when he makes this order, when he issues this decree, every beautiful single woman in Persia becomes his slave. They will be forced to leave whatever life they had and report to his palace, where for a year they will undergo cosmetic treatments and then be presented to the king one by one to be his slave for a night. Every single one of them will be used 
and discarded. Everyone except one. And this is when the camera zooms in on one particular Jewish family who is living in the Persian Empire. It's the first time we meet Esther. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. The camera zooms in on this family that, honestly, they're nobodies. They're nobodies. We meet this young woman named Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. She's being raised by Mordecai because she's an orphan. Mordecai is her older cousin. So she's an orphan woman, a nobody, a Jewish woman in the middle, a drop in the bucket that is the Persian Empire. But she's beautiful, and she's single. So she, along with all the other women in Persia, she becomes a slave. She's taken to the palace. Now, it's interesting you notice this in the text, I think, that she actually has two names. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. She's also referred to as Esther. This is the way the narrator of the story refers to her. Esther more than likely was not her historical name, but a nickname. A nickname, it's a Hebrew transliteration of the word Ishtar. Esther, Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. And as the story unfolds, you'll see why Hadassah becomes known as Esther. Because when Hadassah comes to the palace, there is love and there is thunder. There is war. She's taken to the palace, Hadassah is, and she undergoes the same year-long beauty treatments that the rest of the women endured. Now Mordecai is very concerned for her well-being. In fact, the last thing he says to her before she's transported, confiscated for the king is, don't tell anyone who you are. Keep your nationality, your background hidden. Don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Then she's taken to the palace and Mordecai every single day goes to check on her to gather information to find out how she's being treated. Finally, after the year of cosmetic treatments, the day comes for Esther to appear before Xerxes. And when she does, something happens. She melts the king's heart. And he falls madly in love with her. Here's the way the narrator of the story puts it. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This nobody, this foreigner, a Jewish girl, a drop in the bucket that is the Persian Empire, of all the people that the king could have chosen, he chooses Esther. It seems like God is up to something here. There's one final detail at the end of 
chapter 2 that shows us God is indeed up to something. Esther becomes the queen. And then not long after that, here's what happens. In those days, as Mordecai, her older cousin, was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Presence of the King. So here's how it plays out. One day, Mordecai is just sitting on the park bench, and he happens to be in the right place at the exact right moment. And he hears these two conspirators, they even sound like thugs, Bigthan and Teresh, and they're talking about how they plan to assassinate the king. For some reason, they're unhappy with him. Maybe it was because of that humiliating defeat in his war against Greece. Mordecai hears it and he reports it to Esther. And Esther takes it straight to the king, giving Mordecai full credit. And then we see Xerxes, heart melted by Esther, but still as cruel as ever. He hangs these two men for all of Persia to see. And then that deed is recorded in a book. Now you'll need to remember this book. It will surface later in the story. The book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. What Mordecai did, how Mordecai rescued the king that day, it was recorded in this book. And chapter 2 comes to an end. Now that's where we have to hit the pause button this week. But I hope you'll be back next week. I told you my task today is to tell you the background, only the beginning of the story, but also what to watch for in the rest of the story. I've already hinted at it a bit. But the central message of this book, of the story of Esther, is the providence of God. The providence of God. God's providence is His protective care for His creation. God, in ways that we don't fully understand, intervenes for the good of His people. In some invisible, inscrutable way, God governs all creatures, all kingdoms, all circumstances. Even the darkest corner in this pagan nation, even there, God reigns. He is working all things for the good. In fact, the New Testament counterpart to the story of Esther is that well-known verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So what does this mean for Christians today? What does this mean for you and for me? Here's the contemporary significance of the book of Esther. This book teaches us that even when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust His heart. I told you at the beginning that Esther is unique. Here's how. It is the only book in the entire Bible, the only book in the entire Bible that does not use God's name. Not once. You might hear that and conclude then that God is absent from the story, but nothing could be further from the truth. The absence of the name of God 
is part of the genius of the story. Even when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust his heart. He is always working behind the scenes in ways we don't fully understand. Again and again, we'll see this in the story of Esther. The action of the story will be moving in a direction that seems to be calamitous for God's people, and God will bring a great reversal. He'll redirect everything. What is this? Is it it happenstance? Is it coincidence? No, it's divine intervention. It's God's providence. He is working all things for the good. So here's why this matters. You, whoever you are, you will have seasons in your life, chapters of your life story, where God will seem absent. His name will not be found. Maybe it will be an unexpected diagnosis. Maybe it will be a loss of livelihood. Maybe it will be a disintegrating marriage. You will have chapters of your life story where God will seem absent. But brothers and sisters, it is then that you must remember that He is indeed present. Even when you cannot trace His hand, you can trust His heart. He is good and He is with you, and so you don't quit. You don't quit. Continue serving Him. Continue looking to Him and wait for Him to bring that great reversal. Wait for him to intervene and redirect things in ways that you never thought were possible because that's what he does again and again in the story of Esther. Even when you cannot trace God's hand, you can trust his heart. That is the message of Esther. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story that we are only beginning today to study. We look forward to the next several weeks of unpacking it more and more, learning more and more about your presence and your power in our lives. My guess is that there are people in this room right now who are going through some of those seasons, those chapters where you seem absent. Lord, you have them here for a reason today. To remind them that you're there. You're there. And you have a good plan for them. They've been called according to your purpose. So you are always working for their good and for your glory. Work that truth deep down in our hearts today. As we move into this time of communion, we recognize, God, that this is the greatest of all reversals. A situation that seemed calamitous, the cross. God, you used that to bring healing, salvation, to us. The cross is our victory. We celebrate this truth together today. In Jesus' name, amen.